0: Hello and welcome to the Becoming Lit podcast. I'm your host, Ann Fancy, and I am truly grateful you are here with me today. This podcast is dedicated to having deep and honest, raw and soulful conversations around what it means to be an embodied soul living this messy human existence we'll dive into storytelling, into asking hard questions, exploring wonders of the universe, and digging into some weird stuff. But the whole point here together is that we look deeply into our own life, into our own truth, into our own soulful alignment, and that we peel away everything that doesn't serve. And we step into exactly who we intend to be, to embody as much light as possible, and to shift and change this world for the better. I'm grateful for your presence here, for all the ways you show up in your life, and of course, for lighting up your own corner of the world. Oh man, I feel like you're in for a treat. I just re-listened to this conversation in this editing process and was laughing out loud. Um, Amanda's energy is infectious. She is joyful. She's funny. She's brilliant. And um, she's freaking badass without question. Um, What she's been through, her perspective, her willingness to allow herself to just find ways to be of service and show up in spite of her own circumstances. I think you're really, really going to enjoy this podcast. Um, If you need resources, I'll be sure to include those. Um, I think the main message beyond, you know, learning to roll with the punches, especially because we have no choice often. um, The other main message was, about trusting your intuition. And when it comes to your own body, that we're learning to be invested, aware, connected, so that when you know something's wrong, we have the courage to act. So there's so much packed into this. I can't wait for you to listen. And uh, as always, if you're enjoying this, please uh, like the podcast. It helps us grow, and also, um, of course, join the community on Facebook or reach out to connect with me. Um, Lots of good stuff coming down the pipeline. I'm working on some new programming with my friend Lori Lipton, and thanks again for being here. Hi, everybody. Um, Welcome to today's episode. We're here today with Amanda Itliang. Um, Amanda and I grew up in the same town in uh, Rochester, Michigan, and just sort of always acquaintances that our circles sort of crossed. And I started becoming more aware of Amanda and her story, um, you know, through the wonderful world of Facebook as we were, you know, adults nearing our, you know, late 30s, early 40s. And I was both, you know, horrified and, and fascinated by what I was reading about Amanda, how willing she was to share her story, her own journey with cancer, survivorship. I freaking love your hashtag, not dead yet, like that just I think speaks volumes about who you are and the kind of person you are um, and this insane journey that you have found yourself on. So first of all, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's exciting. Yeah. Connect. As oh, it good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so Amanda, you were diagnosed with cancer, ovarian cancer at 29. And Absolutely. that started you on probably an unexpected ride. Do you want to just kind of give us your, your, elevator pitch, your story from the beginning? Sure. Yeah. So for me,
1: it actually started about a year before that. I started feeling sick and going to the doctor, just, you know, my regular doctor and saying, you know, something's wrong. I'm really fatigued and I'm having these strange pains. Like every once in a while I would have these pains in my pelvis that would kind of last for like 30 minutes and I would just have to lay on the bed in the fetal position. And, Mm. um, you know, it was kind of all explained away because I was so young as, oh, that's that's what ovulation feels like to you or mm-hmm. that's part mm-hmm. of your period or whatever. And um, it turned out that, you know, I was right and the doctors were very wrong at that time because what actually happened is one day I was working at my dream job. I used to be the um student development and leadership director at Stanford. And so I would have mm-hmm. these, you know, helping nerds save the world is kind of like <laughs> one of my specialties. <laughs> and I was going to give a big presentation in my field and mm-hmm. it was like in first thing in the morning. And so I'm at this fancy hotel and I live in San Francisco at the time, but I'm in mm-hmm. this fancy hotel in Denver and I reached down to get my bag to go do my presentation And I felt the worst pain I have ever felt in my entire life,
0: (laughs) like Mm. the
1: only time I've said 10 on the pain scale, and I hope I never have to again. And I knew it was so bad that it either was going to, I was going to pass out or Mm -hmm. um, it had to stop. And Mm. the the next thing I knew, I was on the floor of this really fancy hotel. Mm. (laughs) getting getting, um put into the ambulance with ems and Mm. what happened it was it was an ovarian torsion so it's like my fallopian tube was was there and the the tumor that was on it had completely twisted around the ovary so the pain i was feeling was
0: actually like gangrene (laughs) oh my gosh
1: Yeah. It really hurt for a good reason. (laughs) So I I went to the hospital and they did all the things that they usually do for women who end up having ovarian cancer. They say, oh, let's check out kidney stones. And maybe it's Mm -hmm. something with your gallbladder or your appendicitis or something. But Mm -hmm. what they did was they do a transvaginal ultrasound and then they can see and they're like, oh, it's twisted. That's the problem. So they said, okay, no big deal. We just, uh, you know, they just said, We're, I'm an emergency surgeon. We're just gonna make two little cuts and we're gonna quickly go in and untwist it, and Mm -hmm. then you're done. And so I woke up many hours later. I don't Mm -hmm. know how many hours, but many, many hours later it was dark. And this nurse came up to me and on and she said to me, I'm so sorry to hear you have cancer. Uh. And I was like, what? I didn't say anything to her, but nobody even mentioned the possibility of cancer. Right. And and so I'm alone in this far away place by myself. Yeah. And I'm thinking, what is going on with my life? (laughs) No kidding. Yeah. I had just, wow. Nine, you know, so I was still, Mm -hmm. I I was still doing a lot of triathlons and, you know, I was right really fit person and very healthy. And so it was shocking. Right.
0: Right, Because you're nearly 30 years old. And I mean, we all know that the brain is still like getting a hold of itself until 25 and you're not far on the other side of that. Absolutely. And so then all of a sudden you're like, I just can't even imagine my, I mean, I have a feeling your 29 year old self was like my 29 year old self, which was relatively mature you know as far as the world went in your 20s and also holy crap yeah right you're alone someone just told you you had cancer when that is not how by the way they're supposed to tell you you have cancer (laughs) right oh my gosh so what what like so what was the unraveling of that like afterwards so you go home I assume yeah, well home so- to San Francisco or home to Michigan? San Francisco. Yeah. So, what was so okay. crazy for me
1: was that also I would say that was like the unraveling of my marriage. I was I was had only been mm. married about 2 years at that time, and that was wow. also the unraveling of my marriage started right then mm-hmm. when I got cancer. <laughs> because yeah. what happened is my husband at the time flew from San Francisco to Denver to come see me. Mm-hmm. And he checked into his hotel, got all settled and everything. Then came to the hospital for a couple minutes, and then said, "Okay, I'm gonna go back to my hotel." What? <laughs> and I'm oh, like, God. "Back to your hotel? Like you've already been to the hotel? <laughs> right? Like you, you didn't, didn't come, come to straight see here?"
0: First? <laughs> wow. Yes. That is telling in all the wrong ways. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm so glad you're laughing about it how many Every years later. Yes, right?
1: it's many years later, so it is funny at this point. And also, you know, it's it it really is that in these moments of crisis people show you their true colors sometimes. Yes. And
0: always. It's
1: overwhelming to think yeah. about to think about that. And the funny thing, the reason it's so funny for me now is that like if I had told that to anyone at the time, they would have also been horrified. Right. But I didn't even right. think that it, I didn't even think that it was weird. <laughs> well, Okay. <laughs> well, I guess that was the agreement of the marriage, right? At that point. I
0: guess right? I
1: don't, I it's, it's a very strange thing to think about. So, so that was, yeah. that was definitely like, you know, checking out in a way. Um, hmm. And so, so the unraveling happened over the next months of figuring out, okay, what does this mean to be diagnosed with cancer? And, um, we were also trying to get pregnant at the time we'd already just started. Mm. And so Mm. really interesting kind of ways that we think about women's bodies in particular is, you know, back in the day. So let's say like, you know, from the 1950s through like the eighties. If you Mm -hmm. had anything wrong with you, there were a lot of doctors who would be like, let's give her a hysterectomy, take out all those
0: parts. (laughs)
1: Yeah, we don't need those parts. That's
0: who needs you. them, right? Yes, totally, totally. And,
1: and so there's a lot of women who are now our elders who have stories of, you know, yeah, I had a hysterectomy when I was, you know, 40 years old. And, you know, you ask why, and they don't really exactly know why something was wrong. right? So, and so That's there's... Great. Right. So there's generations right. of those women. And then what started mm-hmm. happening in the 90s and then in the 2000s when I was going through this is the pendulum mm-hmm. swung the whole other way. So then it was about fertility preservation at all costs, mm-hmm. which, mm. which also became a really big challenge for me because I spent two years where they kept part of an ovary, like literally just a piece of one. and one tube and a uterus. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I had two years of trying to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. We did a lot of IUIs. I could never do IVF Mm -hmm. because they were too nervous about taking a needle and kind of, I had cancer in the washings, which is like the liquid of the cavity of the peritoneum. Okay. So they were too nervous about like sticking stuff and mixing it around.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To put it in <laughs> well, <laughs> right? I mean, I do know that like that is a thing, right? As soon as we disrupt something, it sort of bre- it can break the cancer free, so to speak, right? For lack of better language, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, um, because the way so instead of taking it all out, which would have yeah probably been in your better best interest, the fertility preservation gave you more time to grow cancer, basically.
1: Yeah. So what happened was. Um, we actually got pregnant once. Of course, it was on a cycle where we didn't try to do any fertility. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what yes. it usually happens. Yeah, um, yep. and I miscarried pretty far in, and that mm. was that was really tough and everything. It was twins, and um, it's such a challenge. Mm. But what the real challenge was was every time I would go into the fertility doctor, you know, you have all these different. They look in there and see how the eggs are developing, and you know they're mm-hmm. inside mm-hmm. you over and over. Every time we mm-hmm. would go in, they would say, "Ooh, that weird spot." Now it's one point three centimeters. Now it's one point seven centimeters. Now it's two point four centimeters. We would watch these things growing. That because they haven't biopsied, they can't say for sure that they're tumors. But because I've already had huge tumors there, <laughs> like huge tumors.
0: <laughs> right. I, my course. brain is not right comprehending. Okay. Of course, they're oh, probably yeah. tumors. Right. So the pressure as a
1: woman of feeling the pressure of trying to have kids naturally, mm-hmm. which was also really strange for me because my husband and I at the time, we lived in San Francisco. And a lot of our friends were gay and lesbian couples who had Mm -hmm. kids.
0: And it Mm -hmm. wasn't
1: even Mm – so in our circle of friends even, it wasn't strange at all to do all sorts of different things to have children.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. So why were we so – it's so interesting, isn't it? Like the – the societal implication of that, that you get these like blinders on, like, this is the way we're supposed to do it. This is the way it goes. And like, how often we just uh, sort of agree to that we agree to participate in that without questioning it. I mean, again, you're in your what early thirties and all of that. But like, I've even talked, this is sort of random, but it just crossed my mind. Like my mom about her parenting when she was a kid, Uh, not a kid, but when she was a young mother of my brother and what she was told to do with a colicky baby. And I'm like horrified, but she, she's like, nobody told us there was another way. Nobody said, put your baby in the bed with you. And they probably just need to be close to you or whatever. They have these horrible archaic things that you did. And it's like, oh, they're a doctor. This is what we do. Or, oh, I'm a woman and I'm in my thirties. I can get pregnant. Even if I have like. Just had you know, reproductive cancer, and uh, they're watching a tumor grow, and we're not talking about it. And yeah. you know, and I've gained lesbian friends who are adopting, or doing surrogates, or doing whatever they're doing, Absolutely. right? Absolutely, oh. fostering. You know, like right, I, to adopt or
1: just. I saw yeah. like healthy families all around me, made all different ways. So mm. it wasn't mm-hmm. at all a stretch to think yeah. of what else could be. So it was especially a jarring situation. So we weren't really talking about it. I ended up going to a different doctor for fertility. And she was the one Mm -hmm. that finally said, you know, like, we're watching these things grow. It's okay. Like, you get to decide when you're done with this. And that's what I needed. Mm -hmm. I needed somebody to tell me, you get to decide. And I talked Mm -hmm. with my husband about it. And at the time he was on board, it proved to be later that you know, maybe he wasn't, but I can't do anything about Mm. that. So that doesn't bother me Mm -hmm. at all anymore. Right, right, right. (laughs) Um, But but that was an important thing. And so for me, having that that full hysterectomy was actually like, that was me taking control of my reproductive life, saying, okay, Mm -hmm. this isn't the way it's going to happen for me to have a family. And me taking control of my cancer and saying like, okay, we need to be more on top of it because this is scary. Mm -hmm. And I had a doctor at the time, a gyneologic oncologist, which is what the doctors are called, who we go to for like reproductive cancer. They're Mm -hmm. called gynologic oncologists. And it's really important Mm -hmm. to get a gyneologic oncologist. If you have like ovarian cancer or uterine cancer or endometrial cancer or cervical cancer and stuff, because they're really, really Mm -hmm. specialists. Like they go to school even Mm -hmm. longer than other doctors. Okay, And so, um this doctor I still have it like on um you know saved on a message of an old iPhone she told me to my face you will never get cancer again. This is not mm. anything you ever have to think about anymore. This is never going to come back. This is not a problem. Mm. And, you know, I internalize that a lot. And what's really problematic is that 80% of women with ovarian cancer have recurrence.
0: So this is like a series of mis... mis- uh, what's that? Series of unfortunate events. Um, holy crap. So so the gynecologist... Was that the first doctor or this doctor this when you got the hysterectomy?
1: Yeah, it was that it was it was actually in between. It was a doctor that okay. did this surgery that's called debulking, which I don't know if you've ever okay. heard of that, but for people no. who don't know, debulking is what they call it when they basically try to get all these optimal edges, they call it, to get mm, around mm-hmm. all the parts that could be cancerous and get the mm-hmm. best margins that they can. Mm-hmm. And it's called debulking, but it's, it's kind of like, it's really, really violent of a procedure because it not only involves taking out a whole bunch of stuff, you know, women like me, we get um, our appendix and omentum are things that you don't even, you know, those get taken away. right. And omentum is that layer of fat, like kind of on the top of your, on the top of that cavity under your skin.
0: And okay. mm-hmm. they take
1: out anything you you don't need that's extra. And at the point that I'm at, mm-hmm. they take out a lot of things that you do need to. Kind of wanted
0: to keep that, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay.
1: Yeah, I've lost all or part of my left ovary, left flopian tube, right ovary, right flopian tube, omentum, appendix, cervix, um, u- uterus, many, many pieces of, um, of large intestine. That's one of my biggest challenges. Um, Part of my vagina, part of my rectum, um, many, many lymph nodes, right? And I have no belly button.
0: Nothing like uh, interrupting my own podcast with a little plug for my fall retreat. It is coming up quickly here, November 2nd through the 5th. There was a little date change due to some logistics and making it more accessible for everyone. Uh, go check out more info on my website at ianfancy.com backslash retreat, or feel free to reach out with any questions you might have. Um, they do fill up, and I would love to have you there this fall or sometime in the future. Okay, back to the recording. Thanks, guys. <laughs> okay, I didn't even know that was a thing. You're like, you don't need your belly button either. We'll just get rid of it. So they're just like taking things away from your body to try to stop this from spreading. Because what
1: it's like is little grains of sand. And so Mm. the violence kind of of these well-intended surgeries is they literally take like an organ and they like scrape it to try to Mm. get all the like little sandy flecks of cancer out. Wow. And wow. so you think of like what that does to your insides. And so, you know, when I have a tough day, I think like, well, I the sur- I survived a lot. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: I'm really lucky those parts yes. work as well as they do.
0: <laughs> right. Right. I mean, you have, spri- is that how you maintain such positivity or is it just laugh because <laughs> what other choices there? I mean, so tell us about that, because I was I was thinking about that, because part of what you, I just read a little article that you wrote, um, uh, uh, I don't remember even which one, I read a couple of them, but you were talking about how women are conditioned to not complain, right, or that we're, you know, to be polite, this is this is what's happening in so much of the world right now, like nice white people, right, and that mm-hmm. we're nice women, the Me Too movement, it's all of these dismantling of oppressive systems, mm-hmm. and a much much of that as goes back to our, our conditioning to be polite and kind and nice and easygoing and agreeable. Um, And so I read in one of your articles that you were saying, like, listen, this is it's appropriate to complain when you have pain, it's appropriate to listen to your body. Um, And I was just writing down to myself, like, what, how do you balance? um, Because I agree, I'm a big fan of let's admit we're suffering, because it's real. And that, like, let's not sugarcoat it. It doesn't mean there's not room for both. It doesn't mean we wallow in it. It doesn't mean we get stuck there, but like, you know, silver lining our way through life is not working either or through spirituality. So how have you learned to balance that that space? Because you still, I mean, you laugh so so joyfully at the insanity of this, right? And so t- just talk about that for, for a minute.
1: Yeah, I I think where it comes from, part of it is really that there's so many people that should get diagnosed with things like ovarian cancer and other, you know, women really struggle with a lot of diseases that unfortunately we pass of, you know, that are deadly to us mm-hmm. because we didn't find something early enough. But when we look mm-hmm. back, there were symptoms and there were problems. Mm-hmm. So let me just tell you first the symptoms of ovarian cancer so that mm-hmm. you can kind of understand what that is. Because The challenge of these, they used to say that ovarian cancer was the silent killer because these were silent, but they're not silent. Like now we like to say it whispers because Mm. there's four symptoms that are typically more likely in women with ovarian cancer. And most women Mm. have had at least one, sometimes all four of these before they're diagnosed. And so Mm. those are um, like Pelvic or abdominal pain, right? So Mm -hmm. that could be like a pain like mine that took me to the emergency room or that could be just like a little Mm -hmm. twinge. Like some women describe feeling like somebody's pushing on them, you Mm -hmm. know, like where their ovaries Mm -hmm. are kind Mm -hmm. of. Mm -hmm. So that's one. Um, Urinary issues of any kind. So that's that's like, um, that could be you have to go really frequently. You have to go, you can't empty it out. You're, um, you feel like you have to, um, you can't go anything. Urinary issues can be a sign of that. One is feeling full quickly. So that's like, let's see, you're really hungry. You fill your plate up. You thought you were hungry and you're only able to eat a little bit and you Mm -hmm. feel like full And Mm -hmm. often women notice that their bodies are even rounding out a little, but Mm -hmm. they're not, they're eating less than ever.
0: Right. Okay. And so it's
1: really Mm -hmm. confusing. There's this confusion Mm -hmm. about it. Um, And so, and then the last one trying to think, okay, I told you feeling full quickly, pain, pelvic and abdominal pain. Um, Oh my god! Isn't that funny? Bloating? I do this every day. Yeah, um, <laughs> that is so hilarious. Yeah.
0: I could I could pull it back up if I have to. No, know. that's I, I, okay.
1: I, I'm literally sitting here among like buttons and like
0: <laughs> right, right, <laughs> all sorts of. Okay, hold on. Pelvic exam You just re- identify. Okay. Oh, here it is. Wait, here it I is. This-
1: bloating.
0: I love the word bloating. That's what I was saying. One. Okay, bloating. So yeah. bloating.
1: Okay. And that's like, a lot of women describe this. For me, it was like, you get done with work. You want to put on pants that don't hit you right on the waist. Yeah. Okay. You know, that was the kind of bloating. And it was while I was still exercising a lot and feeling really fit Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. but I had the pains Mm -hmm. and I had the bloating. And so all of those things could be something else. So often, You know, people send us to a GI doctor or send us to Mm -hmm. or we go to a regular physician and they don't help us, you know, like like my situation. But what we need to know is if you have any of those symptoms that are new or unusual, like we -hmm. say about two weeks out of a month, then just go to your gynecologist just start in the right yeah. place. Just go to your gynecologist, get it checked out. And what they usually do is they give you a physical exam with their, you know, with their hand. And then, um, sometimes mm-hmm. they'll give you a blood test and sometimes they'll mm-hmm. give you a, va- a transvaginal ultrasound. And it's mm-hmm. just, just, you know, to, to check it out. But it can happen to unfortunately women at, from birth till death. Anyone born with ovaries. Yeah. You
0: know, right. so. Anyone born yeah. with ovaries yeah. at all. And yeah, I even saw that you had written um, on one of the articles that I didn't realize that if you, even if you have had your ovaries removed, if you've had a hysterectomy, it does not mean you are, you are free from the threat of these kinds of cancers.
1: Yeah. And that's a really bizarre thing to think of. It's like, you think, how can I get mm-hmm. ovarian cancer if I don't have ovaries? But what it really is, mm-hmm. is, is it's that peritoneum. It's that lining of your big cavity in there that holds all your organs, you know,
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and there's
1: still these little cells, just, they can be tiny, tiny, like pieces of sand
0: Mm
1: -hmm. and they migrate around the cavity. And that's, you know, unfortunately you can still get ovarian cancer. It's just called primary peritoneal cancer. If that's the first time you get Mm -hmm. it. But for, for most of us women, it happens over and over. Um, And so it's much more of a chronic disease.
0: Mm-hmm. And it has. Right, happened. so you've been, how, how many times have you gone into remission and, and then how many times have you been diagnosed again?
1: I had, I had my first diagnosis and then I think I had about two years, no, maybe three even, where um, I didn't have any cancer and then I had to have the hysterectomy and they found more cancer at that point and restaged me mm-hmm. up to 3C. Okay. And then um, I had, let's see, probably another four years in there where I didn't mm. have cancer, and that's mm-hmm. when um, the so it was the third time I got cancer that um, became really tough. That's when I mm-hmm. kind of realized I need to talk about this more, and this has really become an important thing thing in my life. And then I went through a whole bunch of treatment that third time. And then the fourth time I got cancer, that was in um, March of 2015. And I've had cancer ever since then. And I've been terminal ever since then. Wow. So that was the first time, um, March of 2015 is the first time that they said, okay, Amanda, I'm so sorry. There are no treatment options left for you. Um, You just need to prepare to die. And, you know, there's one thing to tell yourself that, but to prepare people who care about you for that is much yeah. tougher. I was also getting yeah. a divorce finally at that time. Mm. <laughs> like about time I got a
0: divorce <laughs> at that time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some of us just take longer to realize that. I always joke with any relationship, not the one I'm in currently, of course, of course. but- up until then, I'd like to do at least three years extra. So, in most of those relationships, were about three and a half years. So, like you know, let's just make sure this isn't the right fit. You know, let me let me just really make sure. Um, I know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't. I don't know what that is. Codependency, maybe. But um okay. So yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> okay. Who knows?
0: Right. Right. And that's the other thing, right? Let's not be uncomfortable. You know. And so. Um, this is part of what I really would love to talk to you about. Like, um, it's so interesting to, you know, sometimes I, we lost a friend a couple years ago, very mm-hmm. suddenly. And it's something I, I was the kid, just for the record, I don't know what kind of kid you were, but I was the kid that there was these books called Lurleen McDaniel books. And
1: mm-hmm. they were
0: literally about teens with terminal illness. The, in every book in the series is about somebody dying of a terminal illness and I would I consumed them for at least a couple years um that I just I like wanted to be inside well probably it's a highly anxious person especially as a kid and somebody who who lost felt overwhelming to me I think there's some past life stuff with that but um that I wanted to feel like if I could understand it and I could like prepare myself for this inevitable potential, then I'll feel more secure where I am now, right? I don't, I think it has to be something around that. Like, let me really understand it. Um, I also think, you know, the old soul understanding that this is all temporary. I think there was a part of that that was trying to break through to me so that the world didn't feel so scary. Um, but what I'm what I'm thinking about that for for you is you know, I don't know how you feel about this. And, and for me, I've always felt like I'm not afraid of me dying. I'm afraid of other people I love dying, or what it will be like to leave people behind, right? As a mother now, it's like, you know, that consumes me more. I'm not afraid of my own death. I'm pretty sure I know what happens next to some degree. Um, so how have you coped with that for yourself? Was that hard to get a hold of? How has it been sort of facing your own mortality for now six years? I mean, you're beating odds every day, every year, I assume. Absolutely. Yeah. And I have had some opportunities in those
1: in that time. So I did get really lucky for a clinical trial opened up that actually gave me four years on a new drug that now has become like a standard of care for people with my type of rare ovarian cancer. It's called low-grade ovarian cancer, the kind I have. And it's really challenging because the cells grow slower, which is good. It means your tumors grow slower. But the problem mm-hmm. is, every single kind of cancer therapy, like every like chemo and stuff, it's all developed to work on the fastest dividing cells. So chemo mm. doesn't usually work on cancer like mine. So like that mm. whole going through the kinds of chemos that make you go totally bald and you go through all yes. that stuff. You know, I did all that, and like we kind of knew it wasn't going to work.
0: <laughs> Which, right. Is- a I need to nearly kill myself to go through something that probably isn't going to work. Okay. <laughs> it's like wow.
1: a very strange thing. It's <laughs> like, thing strange. <laughs> it never works yeah. hardly. So, so yeah. So, I think for me, that was when I went on my hashtag not dead yet tour, which mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. what that's mm-hmm. how I coped. For me, mm-hmm. um, I had this amazing experience. One of the greatest things that exists out there as a support for people who are diagnosed with cancer between 18 and 40. So that's what we call AYA, which is like ad- adolescent and young adults. And the challenge mm-hmm. is, you know, there's a lot of great support for parents and children who have cancer, right? This is zero mm-hmm. to 18. There's special mm-hmm. hospitals. There's special kinds of doctors. There's all sorts of like programs that support that. Mm-hmm. And then most people with cancer are older adults. Mm-hmm. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff out there that understands them. You know, the drug trials are mostly based on people their age, you know, the supportive Mm -hmm. systems that have been created, you know, even like the support groups and stuff are people their age. Yeah. And then there's this weird group of us in the middle. And it Mm -hmm. really is strange because here, these are people who get cancer at the age when other people are finding partners um, mm-hmm. get, having success in their career for the first time, mm-hmm. having children, you know, these are things yeah. that like getting derailed for a year or two <laughs> in the middle of mm-hmm. all that is, a, is a really scary proposition in a different way. Right. It's just yeah. a very different thing. And so for me, one of the coolest things I've ever done, it's, it's an organization called first descent, like descent, like mm-hmm. going down, yeah. And yeah. I got to when I had cancer for the fourth time, terminal cancer, mm-hmm. I got to learn how to whitewater kayak in Montana. Wow. Right. I ha- I don't think I had any business whitewater kayaking. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, wait, I didn't even hear you.
0: Kayaking. Right. That's yeah. very different than rafting. Okay. No, kayaking.
1: Okay. Like just me yeah. in a little
0: tiny boat. <laughs> Right.
1: And, um, right. you know, I learned how to do it. Oh, there goes my little dog. He's making some noise. Okay. Um, and <laughs> I learned how to do that. And it was amazing for me because it meant it It really works for everyone because you get to do it with a whole bunch of other people who have cancer that are your age. So you make these great mm-hmm. friendships. But what's most powerful is just the idea of there are things I can do that are Mm -hmm. crazy and adventurous and amazing and my body can still do this yes and I had a really similar experience I got to do a special um you know show of the moth the storytelling show that Mm -hmm. was a cancer themed Mm -hmm. one Mm -hmm. and that was like an intellectual challenge that Mm -hmm. was a wonderful adventure and something that was really good and healthy for me and so I think There's Mm -hmm. really something about when all the odds are against you, proving to yourself that there's things that your body, your mind, whatever it is that you can still do. And that's even with, you know, I became permanently disabled at that point too. You know, I'm a, Mm -hmm. I'm disabled. I can't work um, my career. Mm -hmm. I miss my career terribly. But what I do now is I work on projects that are with people and organizations that understand my disability and that, you know, Mm -hmm. um, we have a flexible kind of relationship that we can still get a lot of great things done for people, but it's just in a different context. Yeah. And finding your purpose. I think that's the biggest thing we can do. Right. It's like, if Mm -hmm. you can figure out, you know, when it hit me that I was like, okay, I don't know if this makes sense to you, Annie, but like, if you think of, have you heard how people will say you are not your cancer, cancer doesn't define you or they'll mm-hmm. say that about any kind of illness or any kind of situation mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. they could say that mm-hmm. about anything. And mm-hmm. I have a little challenge with that because in a way, cancer defines my life. Like every mm-hmm. single decision I make all day long goes through the cancer matrix. <laughs> You know,
0: mm-hmm, whether mm-hmm. it's
1: if I have to go to the bathroom or not, <laughs> you know? right? I have right. to think, Right. how does my body work right now? And what, <laughs> you know, what can I get right. away with? Um, right. And so in a sense, cancer is everything to me. But what becomes really, really amazing is when you're able to use your skills and talents that you've developed in life, you know, your education, those mm-hmm. kind of things and combine them with this thing that is you know, where your voice matters. So for me that's being a patient. You know, I'm an expert mm-hmm. cancer patient at this point. I've been at right. it for 12 and a half right. years. I have had mm-hmm. so many different surgeries and treatments and I've had a lot of different experiences as a patient at many different hospitals. And so I'm an expert patient. And so when I can combine those two to be able to really help people, because
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, um, if you put it really bluntly, a lot of people like me aren't alive to be able to say the things that need to be said at the table when we're making decisions yeah. about patients. Yes, yeah. And so yeah. it's like I have a, a lot of, pressure, go ahead, keep going. it's a pressure, mm-hmm. but it's a drive, right? Mm-hmm. It's a drive, do you mm-hmm. think though when you're talking about what you were like as a little girl and reading those books and stuff though mm-hmm. do you think part of that is maybe like
0: being drawn to like being a healer in a sense uh well, yeah, I mean that's so interesting because i've never um I never thought of myself I've chilled so well. you just asked me that um I never thought of myself as a healer right like that just didn't occur to me but in the last several years in every spiritual circle whatever shaman I've seen or whoever it, it just you name is calling me that um it, it's really interesting I think that yes I think it's a lot of things I think that I think that's absolutely accurate and thank you for pointing that out I think that it's I think my anxiety just like you're saying my experience of anxiety depression mood disorder um, which was pretty severe as a kid my effed up relationship with my body like all of those things um were placed in my experience so that I am a better yoga teacher, um, spiritual person, teacher, advocate for all of these things, I would not be as compassionate, understanding, um, uh, present with all of it if I hadn't learned how to manage my own suffering to some degree and my own discomfort. And so I think that I I think that's such a fascinating, fascinating reflection to think like, was that because of my innate desire to be a healer? Yeah. I mean, yoga, essential oils, meditation. Um, to me, the greatest healing is to do exactly what you've done, which is to say, well, and I like this perspective and I don't know what your spiritual perspective is, but for me to go, okay. So if I wrote my life as a book, as a soul before I entered this body, and I gave myself this obstacle that we are calling cancer whether or not I knew it was going to specifically be cancer or something like that. But I gave myself this terminal illness as an experience to move through, rise through and reclaim myself. Right. I agree 100 percent that cancer is central to your experience as a human being in this lifetime. And I think, you know, I've been talking a lot about this idea of hero's journey with friends and it's like, it's both in shamanism, it's Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, it's every it's Harry Potter, like it's every nerdy thing you know that you probably love too. Um, I don't I'm not a Star Wars person, but it's very much there, right? So if the biggest if the biggest uh obstacle in your life is cancer, which clearly I would say that that's a fair assessment, yeah, yeah. that like this loop you keep riding around your own hero's journey. It's like every time you loop back around and you go into the cave of the abyss and then you come back into the ordinary world again, like you are reclaiming light. And then what you're doing so beautifully is offering that advocacy to other people, offering them to view their cancer perhaps from a different perspective, right? And like, I just look, like, I think that's what always struck me just reading your stuff is like how, look how empowered you are through this process, right? like, I'm sure you have victim moments and you're in the abyss and you're like, what the F and why did this happen to me? And this sucks and this blows. And, you know, maybe round one, two, whatever, three, four, I don't know at what point that started. And now even I can't imagine not feeling like that. That's very human. Like F this, you know, and, and let me also back up and say this. I know when I say things like, what if your soul chose this, some people interpret that as like, um, a shame thing. Like, like somehow I, um, earned this. I don't mean in any way deserve. I don't mean in any way, anything that has to do with shame. I just think it's a shift in power position to go, okay, if I called this hardship in to some degree by choice, because I wanted to move through this, how can I move through this, reclaim myself, have as much power, positivity, you know, whatever that is advocacy, how can I turn this into service? Like, and that is what always struck me about how you show up in the world.
1: Thank you. That's so. I, I. I'm honored that you think that. I'm. I really appreciate it. I. I think as as somebody you could, I mean, any of us who've gone through physical or mental illness of any type, you know, have to really understand toxic positive positivity too, right? We have mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. be able to identify when somebody is just trying to get us to maybe shut up.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: and get yeah. over it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> by saying yep. something like nice, but not kind at mm-hmm. all. Right. Right. And that right. I think sometimes we're bombarded with that toxic positivity. Um, mm-hmm. And for a while I went through some of those times when I would, you know, I didn't want people to call me strong and I didn't want to, and, and it's true, you know, I'm not brave or strong. I mean, I think of myself those, those ways because I know the daily things that I have to experience and get through, but, um, you know, those are like things that get thrown out a lot, um, at people who Mm -hmm. face these kind of challenges. And, um, it's something that a lot of people go through a phase of kind of saying, Oh no, 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 that's not me. It's just, I'm stuck dealing with this. Mm-hmm. But I mm-hmm. really do believe that, um, you know, we do have to kick the toxic positivity aside because sometimes that mm-hmm. that's something though, that if you can learn to recognize it quickly, I think mm-hmm. you can just kind of like, it's like Tai Chi or something you like deflect,
0: <laughs> you know, yes, <laughs> just yes. push it away. <laughs> um, yes. But I or think, think of the right comebacks that shut those people down, you know, that are like <laughs> yes. you get you know, one or two liners where you could just like put it back on them, you know? Oh, that's easy for yeah. me. I say some really, yeah. really
1: inappropriate things to people, people that we Perfect. both know too. <laughs> <Sometimes>. <laughs> Good. I think people deserve it, you know, with yeah. love. <laughs> no, I mean, sometimes just the honest answer is like very jarring. And so I'm not afraid yeah. anymore to be honest about, you know, about my truth. You know, when somebody asked me, like, if I have kids, you know, no, Mm -hmm. I got cancer instead, you know, that's the truth of why I don't have kids. Um, right. And that's okay. It's not something that makes me want to feel sad or want to cry or anything. It's literally just Mm -hmm. the truth of what that is. And so I think there's just so much power in, um, you know, the only time that when we're oppressed that we can be the most powerful in the room is when we use our voice,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: and mm-hmm. that's, mm-hmm. that's like something that an ally can never do. That's something that even someone with the most money and the most, yeah. you know, um, kind of traditional power mm-hmm. in a lot of senses, you know, if you have experienced something and you have a story, you If you can put it to voice, you are the most powerful person in that room. And for me, I think this became really easy because the things I've always taught to students, you know, I've always run like these service and leadership centers at colleges. And so what I studied in school and in graduate school and all these things was really like, you know, it was hero's journey kind of stuff. It was Joseph Campbell. It was understanding, you know, the different, you know, all the philosophies that kind of bring us to this idea that... We have to, um, you know, help people like find their passion and their niche. That's part of it. But we have to also help people understand power dynamics in a way that helps them be ethical and effective in what they do. Mm. So for me, Mm -hmm. that's really important. You know, something um, that right now I'm working on is I've kind of devoted this year of my cancer work to racial disparities in gynecological cancer which is a Mm -hmm. huge, huge issue and a terrible challenge. And the things that black women in particular go through with gynecological cancer are just a whole nother level of harrowing sometimes. I mean, some of the stories that I've heard, um, Mm -hmm. you know, just really have, have pushed me to where I want to focus on this. And so I'm working Mm -hmm. actually on my first medical research project, which I'm not a doctor, (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It's, it's a little <laughs> crazy that all of a sudden I'm doing medical research, but I found, right. I found an amazing partner who is a doctor who, um, mm-hmm. is in New York and she's um, a radiation oncologist and is amazing and fabulous. And we're working together on this project. We have some other women we've gathered who have experienced gynecological cancer who are from different races themselves. A good friend of mine here in Detroit who's a black woman who's experienced gynecological cancer and also does mm-hmm. outreach through Gilda's Club and stuff. A great, great person and friend mm-hmm. of mine. Um, and we've collected a team of these women and basically we're getting together to say, okay, What is the way we can change, you know, the situation? Well, we've got to start with authentically creating space for the marginalized voices of these Black women. Mm -hmm. Like, we Mm -hmm. have to start Mm -hmm. with, like, their stories. And from there, we build you know, what we're thinking of is building like the training that not just doctors and nurses, but the doctors, the nurses, the schedulers, the receptionists, basically what we're realizing is that there's racism and implicit bias in the delivery of healthcare all the time. Sure. How do we make sure that everybody who touches a patient and how communicates with a patient, you know, understands those differences and can participate. Mm -hmm. And so That's like a project where it's a wonderful challenge for me because um, as a white woman, I am not the target population that Mm -hmm. we're working on. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, Mm -hmm. I can relate. I've had gynecological cancer for a long time. Um, But Mm -hmm. what's so wonderful is that, you know, I can kind of take on the role a little bit of like, you know, moving the project along, kind of like organizer, project manager, secretary, kind of. And I can Mm -hmm. leave the space for this incredible black female doctor that I work with and my incredible friends of color who have experienced Mm gynecological cancer. I can leave the space for them to be experts and influence Mm -hmm. the direction and, you know, how this project manifests itself. And so for me, I'm coming at it as mostly an ally to the Mm -hmm. issue. And so one of the Mm -hmm. things I've always worked on teaching for so long is, you know, that idea of like, how do you do that in a way that's going to be ethical and effective? How do you do that in a way that people are going to be able to, you know, um, use what power they have in communities? Um, Mm -hmm. Because that's when change really happens is when we work together across all these differences, you know, And, Mm -hmm. and I'm in the best situation ever because I also have just collected, you know, like there's a group of women that just really inspire me and I like, and we have fun.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And yeah. so if you get to work with that and you're all passionate about ending these racial disparities in gynecological cancer, you know, there's nothing better than just, yep. you know, that group of driven, passionate people. Um, Purpose this, driven. Yeah, yeah, It's so cool. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think, yeah. I think there's, there's a lot for all of us to kind of challenge ourselves to not only, you know, not only like speak up when we need to, but also step back
0: mm-hmm. when we need to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, okay, so that was a lot of things and I want to make sure I get all of my thoughts around it. I think it's really interesting. interestingly reflect back to the first part. I love, first of all, I love that you're doing that. I think that's incredible. And like, there again, right? We, we um, you know, it's hard to say this, that people say often like, well, you know, everything's a choice. And I, well, I agree. I also understand that not everybody has it within them to make the highest and best choice at all times, right? So when you're in the depths of something really hard, even though you know you have, quote unquote, a choice to some degree, sometimes it does not feel like that. So it's interesting about the conversation you started with about being brave and courageous because you did not ha- you did not choose cancer in this human experience. I mean, you know, let's not split hairs there. Uh, mm-hmm. And you're living in a human body um, you didn't choose necessarily to walk through this um, in that way. Or or in those moments, you have no choice. I mean, y- you're facing it. So I guess your choice is to be the victim and wither and die. And, and you know, I do think energetically people choose to surrender and give up faster. Um, with, we watch that with any terminal illness or any sort of life challenge. You can see that some people choose to no longer put life force at surviving whatever they're surviving, right? Um and then you can see that there's people like you who have this this um, incredible will to keep moving forward, and then using the time you have, which you keep exceeding, to do powerful things. And I and it's really interesting talking listening to you about that because part of what. I've been with, I have these two um, dear friends that we, I call them my sister wives and we're we're on, you know, Facebook messenger all day long, like, you know, in deep conversation and then sending inappropriate memes. So it just depends which <laughs> which side of the spectrum we're on at any given time. But, you know, we've been talking, I also taught a teacher training for yoga this last um, couple of weeks ago, and we talked about the hero's journey sort of, and layering that onto how you really make impact in the world. Right. So, you know, it's one thing to teach some, some postures, and then it's another thing to learn how to like actually make impact, Mm -hmm. which is why, again, I was drawn to you, your caring bridge, which was probably just supposed to be kind of filling people in on what was going on in your life also was making such an impact on me, who was like two or three times removed from understanding what was happening in your life. Right. Um, and so what we what we were talking about in this idea of impact is that um and uh, in fact my word for 2020 was supposed to be impact and then like (laughs) we had a a pandemic and I was like I can't do anything homeschooling my kids (laughs) sucks like we're (laughs) you know I produced like two podcasts I just couldn't do shit um we're on the answer. Yeah, I mean, please, like first word world problems. I was so, you know, I watched all of Netflix. I consumed the Internet. I survived every app for an eight-year-old. I mean, really, nothing was hard. I stood in line at Trader Joe's. I, there was actual zero hardship, but still somehow the the world falling apart. I mean, there was, you know social uh, unrest around Black Lives Matter, which was in, in George Floyd. And that was very consuming to me. I was trying to teach yoga on Zoom and still be impactful and try to, and by the way, we were finishing um, an addition to my house, but all still nothing. It, I mean, yes, there was some suffering, but really it's not real. Anyway, let's go back to the point, which was, we have the opportunity, and I've been talking about this a lot in yoga this these last couple of weeks, but what what i was hearing in your story and what i've been thinking a lot about is like what is it in a human being that allows them to take their circumstances when we get to that if we're following the hero's journey circle right like that you there's always that choice point where i can step back into the world changed and then offer this quote unquote medicine that i've learned or this jewel i have gained or this gryffindor sword or whatever i can step back in transformed knowing that it's going to be different. I'm going to make people uncomfortable. I'm going to, you know, answer their queries honestly. Um, you know, all of those things. I, I can do that, or I can retreat back into safety, right, and not step out. Change. I can fall back into my patterns. I can stay in the mentality that makes me f- of suffering, right. And I don't blame people for that. I love to wallow in my own suffering, um, for sure. I'm I pity party for one is definitely a pattern that I have. Um, I try to learn how to limit myself on it now, but you know, I'm I'm not going to pretend that I've, you know, don't do that. Um, So I guess I would love to like, I don't know, maybe it's just reflection, but I think that what I hear you saying is like these extraordinary, it's, I think, I think personally it takes, it's it's extraordinary or extraordinary to be the kind of person that says, here's the shit sandwich I was handed. And now I'm going to, rise beyond that so to me maybe the courage isn't facing hard things all human beings have to face hard things if you're living a life um and we all have to dig in or we're all being asked to dig into our courage at different times Mm -hmm. but the people who actually become courageous I think are the ones who take who find the jewel in the middle of the shit sandwich how's that for a really lovely visual analogy and um and and move forward like with this work like you know, this is, this is like the hero's journey over and over again. Are you willing to answer the call? Like, are you willing to say yes to the call? And it it's, it's really profound that you've been willing to do that and um, profoundly inspiring. Let me say it like well, that.
1: I appreciate that. I think though, like what gives me power? This sounds, I mean, I don't, I don't know how to make this, this might sound strange, but um, go for it like I am fueled by the legacy of some very wonderful people that have passed Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. I have gone through all of this. Um, Mm -hmm. When I was first diagnosed, um, I had a friend that I worked with who was one of those people that you just, you know how you just feel like you're supposed to know somebody. He was, he was that person in my life. His name was Alex Mm -hmm. and we were about Mm -hmm. six months apart in age and we um, basically worked on the same kinds of things. I worked with um, a lot of different kinds of students, and he worked with just engineering students. And he was mm-hmm. this amazing, amazing, incredibly, like he was a, um, a Stanford grad for undergraduate. He, he graduated from Stanford, and he was working on finishing his Ph.D. in electrical engineering from Stanford, which mm-hmm. is, you know, requires a few extra he brain did. cells that I don't have. <laughs> and, <laughs> So just, just like a genius person and also mm-hmm. just a light, you know, somebody who he would go and he would like, he, um you know, would teach little kids science, you know, that was something he was really passionate mm-hmm. about too and stuff and getting little kids into it. And um, yeah, just a great person overall. Well, he got diagnosed with cancer about six months before I did. And so he wow. was somebody that I looked up to the entire time mm-hmm. he got diagnosed mm-hmm. i got diagnosed this is somebody and we had a really very strange wonderful connection where also like i remember the time that i i um i was pregnant and then i miscarried he knew from across a crowded auditorium yeah i have no idea how but like the conversation we had at the afterwards was like he knew you know and yeah. um, well
0: i call that i call that a soul friend yes. and intuition yeah, yeah.
1: absolutely yeah. and and alex one of the funniest memories i ever have this sounds this is so it still cracks me up when i'm in the hospital and i just think of him so much mm-hmm. he was this brilliant electrical engineer who like could create You know, he was like creating inventing medical devices that could like go in your veins and like do a little dance Mm -hmm. and fix something and Mm -hmm. then come back out through your nose or something. You know, that's right, right,
0: right. Right. (laughs) But but
1: he he we were when he was in the hospital and he was really sick. This is like Mm -hmm. probably one of the one of the last times he was really sick in the hospital. The nurses, um, all of a sudden one of the machines in his room would start beeping, like means machines Mm -hmm. in the hospital do. And mm-hmm. they, you know, he wasn't allowed to touch it. He wasn't allowed. To, he could have right. invented the machine in right, like 20 himself. minutes. Right. <laughs> right. right. They would go right. freaking out and then nobody would be able to. And so I'm sitting in his hotel, in his hospital room, and we're just trying to talk about normal stuff, but there's this infernal mm-hmm. beeping from this machine and nobody will let him touch it. And he's like the one right. who would know how the to say, who could it. solve the problem. <laughs> Right. Absolutely. Right. And this was before Obamacare. And actually, um, Alex had to pretend not to be done with his PhD so that he could wow. maintain health insurance because yeah. otherwise he would be graduated, not access to student care anymore, and at, with terminal cancer, not be able to get health insurance. So Alex earned his degree posthumously. Wow. And I carry him with me ever since, you know what I mean? So like when yeah. I think of certain ways that I have to be a voice in the room or certain ways I try to make impact, it's like, absolutely, yeah. I'm channeling Alex because I know what he would have thought, yeah. and he, what he would have said. And the same thing, a couple, um, that same year that I first got sick, um, what the first student that I told, cause I was, you know, advising students, I was, a, I was a professor and, mm-hmm. um. I had a, one of my leadership fellows come into my office and this wonderful, wonderful student named Tyrone McGraw, and he came in and it was just, he was sharing about something really personal that had happened to him. And I just kind of said, well, I get it. You know, I just, you know, got diagnosed with cancer, Tyrone, and come to find out his, like his mother, um, who was like really his aunt, but like his, who we thought of as his mother. Had died yeah. of ovarian cancer. Wow. So we, we suddenly had this connection. We would do, mm-hmm. like, Relay for Life together and stuff yeah. for the next couple yeah. of years because we had this connection. Mm-hmm. And then um, four years after he graduated, he got head and neck cancer. Yeah. Um as like an amazing you know he'd worked at the white house with obama he'd Mm -hmm. like been teaching in inner city chicago he was in this amazing Mm -hmm. like california government fellows program um he just just Mm -hmm. this absolute he was a he was a star football player and track athlete at stanford who turned into a just and he was brilliant and just a good, good person. And so we used to have these cancer talks, you know, on the phone from Michigan mm-hmm. and California mm-hmm. when he was sick. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it was magical to be able to talk about things that really matter. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's how I see you as a healer too, because you talk about things that really matter. And that's yeah. maybe one of the most profound
0: ways that we can help people heal. I think. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I think that, um, you know the other things I do are just adjunct to this. This is what I prefer, and um, I think growth happens through this. I think this is you know I happen to believe that our souls enter to to grow, and that not not everybody's willing to step into that challenge. Um, and I think that we're fed this perception that it's not going to be messy or hard, mm-hmm. and that we so then we avoid when it is messy and hard or like you've said, like this, all the niceties and all of those things. I mean, I am grateful for a mother who, um, always was willing to speak the uncomfortable truth into the room. I mean, there was, it was, might've been loaded with some other, um, uh, unspoken, uh, you know, feedback too. Um, but she taught me absolutely just to say what you see and to not be afraid to speak that. And I think, um, I think it's powerful. That's why I wanted to do this podcast and let people come on and share their story and and that so that others can see them themselves in that because, like you said about you know, your voice, I always think of the quote, you know, like when one I don't remember who said it or and I'm sorry for that, but basically, you know, anytime one woman speaks her voice um into a room, right? she is speaking for all those who who don't feel ready to speak, right? And that, like, that's how we rise up more and more of us become brave enough to tell our difficult stories um for you to share the stories of your friends who have passed like and, and that legacy that fuels you like that's all 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 of those all of these choices like that i think are how we how we grow change shift and transform and become the versions of ourselves we intended to when we entered um this earth plane and so um i i completely understand the the drive of of I think it's just I just you know like you can be hum- as humble as you want I think there, that sometimes some of us have learned to be too humble too and I might see it say that about you you're you're beyond humble but but you've used just these um divine alignment right those friendships were not an accident right if you were the hero in your hero's journey there were your allies along the way that stepped into your life to continue to fuel you forward and it is not an accident either that they both were like bright shining people I think that that is often something I've seen too that people who it's like they they burn out faster like they just have so much vitality my my buddy we lost too you know Mm -hmm. and um so so what I what I'm feeling around all of that for you is that um I see your humility, and also I just think that perhaps you can allow yourself to absorb um, uh, how how brilliantly you're moving through your world. Not all most people don't show up to step into their highest and best. Right when the roads diverge, I think that there's lots of times where we where we choose not necessarily. And I'm not saying you've done it every time, but it seems like more often than not, you're choosing highest and best, highest and best. What's the best? way I can show up what's the best way I can navigate this how can I continue to grow and push myself and and um speak for those who are no longer here to speak and advocate for those who don't have a voice and create systems that help people who are underserved like I mean you are a shining example of what it means to really just show up in the world and I'm so grateful for you sharing your story I'm uh inspired by the work you're doing and um I can't wait to see what else comes out of this and out of this incredible human being that you are. And by the way, very brilliant, obviously, in your own right, you may not know how to fix the, <laughs> medis- the, me- the mechanics of that, but you no. clearly have your own brilliance.
1: Well, thank yeah. you. I just, I think that sometimes we just need to like, you know, find those things that inspire us and and give us drive and carry them with us. You know, it's kind of like, mm-hmm. that's a lot of what my meditation is. Is like, It's reflecting on people that I've lost that I want to carry with me and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and what gifts they taught me. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. and to keep that as part of my challenge. And so, you know, I really appreciate it. It's not, I think, I think it's also just, um, it's about ambition in a sense. I think at one time I was always a very driven, ambitious person when I was really younger And then, and then it switched to where the ambition was about impact, right? It Mm -hmm. wasn't at all Mm -hmm. about any, getting anything fancy on my resume anymore, or, Mm -hmm. you know, what fancy school I went to or what fancy program I did. It was really about ambition towards making a difference. And I think Mm -hmm. when people figure that out, whether Mm -hmm. that's, creating the greatest family that they can or creating the best career that makes a difference or Mm -hmm. just what they do in their volunteer Mm -hmm. time or just how they treat people. I think if you figure that out, that the ambition switch Mm -hmm. can click over to that thing about impact. I think that's, that's like so much more rewarding of a life. Yes. And so I feel like I, if you wrote down the bullet points, I'm like have cancer for the fourth time. That's terminal. I am divorced. I like live alone. (laughs) I'm disabled. Like if my bullet points suck, right. They they (laughs) sound really, really depressing, but in reality, my life is great. Right. I live a beautiful, beautiful life surrounded by love and by people that challenge me and ideas that challenge me and needs that challenge me. And so I think that's how you have to sometimes look at it. It's like, you know, those bullet points. Sure. Like Mm -hmm. you can say, Mm -hmm. Oh, those things are going to make me sad and depressed and and sit around and not do anything. But like, um, and I don't mean to make light of the depression and the anxiety that comes along with trauma, like cancer, like that's definitely real, but therapy Mm -hmm. helps a lot. Medical marijuana helps a lot too. Medical marijuana, good. Me <laughs> too. <laughs> I'm not gonna good. lie. That's a positive thing in my yeah. life. Um, and so, good. and so, I think that's that's what what is really good at the end of the day is just to remember. Yeah, the bullet points don't have to be what it's about. It's like, how do you feel? How do you make others feel? Mm-hmm. And that should be mm-hmm. what drives you. I mean, you inspire mm-hmm. the crap it. out of me. I like love oh. whenever I see that you're doing something new, and like, I think it's like. It's really cool when people kind of like you get to watch them evolve, even if it's from afar Mm -hmm. and you see like, you know, I I would have never thought of that for you. And it's so cool that you're finding your place in so many different places. It's very cool. I very much admire the way you look at
0: motherhood, too. That's that's a cool, Um, cool way to do it. (laughs) Trying, trying. We work hard to keep the magic alive here and, uh, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's all right. I love I love what you're saying. though, And um, I think that's what I try to do too. impact is really the word. And can I turn whatever my circumstances, gifts, talents, the good, the bad, the in between, can I turn it into impact? Um, and, and to me, that's also service, right? And so it's really the same thing. How can I be of service to the world? Um, and by the way, number one way to like combat depression is to get out of your own crap, right? Yes. And show up for someone else
1: absolutely yeah. if you I, can make meaning of your trauma yes and you can turn that into yeah. something meaningful that is the yeah. best power
0: absolutely yes um, and for the record when you were talking about your buddies I could energetically feel them they are with you so absolutely. they don't have to just be in your mind and in your memories I think they are literally standing behind you um, <laughs> supporting you as you move forward so it's pretty awesome and proud of you for where you are and what you're doing. So, yeah. Well, thank you for your time. Please send me um, all the resources that you think would be helpful, any links to articles and things like that, that that will be helpful to people and how they can contact you or, or, um, you know, if you wanna be contacted, Um, but how they can reach out to you and and find out about the work you're doing and the research you're doing. I think that's all so incredible. Um, And I'm just grateful to spend some time with you.
1: Absolutely. It was delightful. You're delightful. I wish you the very best and health and happiness always.
0: Thank you so much for listening all the way through and being willing to hear the entirety of this podcast. I appreciate you. I appreciate your time. If you're interested in following up with some of the resources discussed, I will be sure to put those in the show notes. And uh, I, would again, appreciate you Rating and subscribing to this podcast. It helps more and more people access these heartfelt, honest, raw conversations. Um, And lastly, of course, please, please join my mailing list. You can get to it at antfancy.com and uh, jump on that so you can be in the know about new podcasts and um, other endeavors I am um, taking on as I continue to step into what calls to me. I hope you're doing the same and please continue to light up your corner of the world. I'm grateful for you.